Good morning. I'm Paul, the pastor of Global Outreach, and this may be the most people I've seen in this room in a long time. <laughs> Thank you, God. Thank you for coming, and may God protect us. I think God has given us a path for doing this safely. Um, I'm so thankful for that, um, but we still, we still ask for God's protection. Let's pray and ask God to lead our time together. Jesus, we come here hungry for you. God, I've prepared words, but they're just words unless you empower them. So God, let this place be filled with your spirit. Let everything we say and think be guided by your spirit. Let us take everything captive to you and test it by your word. And if there's anything that's said that doesn't reflect you, that doesn't come from you, sweep it away quickly, Lord, and focus us on you, Jesus. We need you. We want to be about your business of building your kingdom here in Iowa City and all over the world for the hope and salvation of every single person. And so it's with these words we pray, Jesus, come, Lord. Amen. Unimaginable. Things that lie one step beyond what we've ever thought or dreamed about. We can't think about it no matter how hard we try because it's unimaginable. The Bible is the greatest unimaginable truth available to human beings. We couldn't have made it up if we had tried for a million years. Made-up religions all have the same characteristics. They portray capricious gods that need to be appeased to avert constant impending tragedy. The Bible flips that script. And now the creator of the universe becomes a man in the person of Jesus dies to take the punishment that every one of us deserved so that perfect justice is preserved, but at the same time, forgiveness can be offered to anyone who confesses their sin and puts their trust in Him. What makes this the greatest unimaginable truth? We all know that unimaginable things can be both good and bad. The Bible, however, is like the ultimate good unimaginable. It's truth so great that it can provide a path through the unimaginable difficulties that we can face in this life. It also gives us the hope of eternal life in the new heaven and the new earth when this life is over, untouched by sin or sadness, where every tear is wiped away and we cannot be touched by evil anymore. This is good news. And yet, if we think about it, if we think about Iowa City and the surrounding area, is Iowa City characterized or known for living in light of this good news? If we surveyed 20 people, could any of them tell you this unimaginable good news? A goodness that gives us hope in the midst of a pandemic? Or a complicated political time? How many of us have shared this goodness with anyone in the past week, month, or year? Is it possible that a large-scale movement of the gospel in Iowa City is unimaginable to us? Isn't that just impossible? According to what I could find online, in Iowa City, only 36.4% of the people are considered religious, meaning to have any faith of any kind. Catholics make up the largest percentage at 16%. 
Methodists, Presbyterians, and Lutherans come in around 5% each, and the last 5% is made up of Muslims, Evangelicals, Mormons, Jehovah's Witness. How would Iowa City be different if 50% trusted and followed the Jesus of the Bible? And to be clear, there's only one Jesus, but there's also the Jesus that people make up in their minds because they've never read the Bible. How did the good news of Jesus get to us? And how does the gospel get through us? How does the unimaginable become imaginable? Is there a path not only to imagine it, but also for it to become reality? The Bible is our guide. The Bible is an incredible story from cover to cover about the unimaginable moving into the imagination of human beings and becoming reality. When Adam and Eve were created, they were intimately connected to the God of the universe, who gave them every delightful necessity of provision, along with the freedom to obey or disobey. I'll never forget the time I was reading the Bible with a group of Chinese friends who were all new to the Bible. We were reading the second and third chapters of Genesis, the first book in the Bible that tells about the creation of the world and how the human race began. We had just finished reading about Adam and Eve and how they had failed to trust God's goodness, deceived by Satan into disobedience as a consequence, and they had to leave the Garden of Eden. I asked the question, what can we learn about God? And without hesitation, a young man said, I learned that God is merciful. Really? I couldn't believe my ears. How could he say something good about God when he will no longer let Adam and Eve live in the garden? I wondered if this guy was just repeating something that he'd heard somewhere else. So I asked the question I always ask when I have a question about somebody's biblical interpretation. Where do you see that in the verses that we read? We always want to be sure we're not just making up the Bible like we think it should be. Asking ourselves to support conclusions by pointing out the verses that support our case is one great way to do this. Again, without hesitation, he said, in chapter 2, God gave Adam and Eve every good thing, but he told them in verse 17 that if they ate from the dangerous tree, they would surely die. They ate from the tree. God could have killed them, but he didn't. He comes to find them in verse 8. He makes clothes for them to cover their shame in verse 21 and gives them a new place to live in verse 24. This young man just explained the good news of Jesus from Genesis 2 and 3. This is the story that the Bible repeats over and over from Adam and Eve to Noah where every human being was disobedient and yet God still gave one way to be saved to the creation of the chosen nation called Israel from a man named Abram and his wife Sarah, not because this nation would be more loved than all the rest, but that through their trust in God, all nations would come to put their trust in his love and be saved. As we read in Genesis 12, verse 3, when God is speaking to Abram, all nations on earth will be blessed through you. Really? God gives the childless man the new name of Abraham, meaning the father of many nations. To quote from one of my favorite movies, inconceivable. 
God, don't you know that a few thousand years from now we'll have all sorts of technology. The world will be seven billion people and you're saying that all these nations will be blessed by Abraham? Everybody say it with me. Inconceivable. How did the goodness of God reach us? What is God's design for reaching the rest of the people on earth who haven't heard or trusted his goodness yet? Let's go to Jesus. God in human form. At the beginning of his public ministry, he gave this invitation in Matthew 4. Come follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Now the men he was talking to knew a lot about fishing for fish, but what did Jesus mean when he said they would be fishing for people? Here was an introduction to the unimaginable. These guys were not educated in formal schools. The women who began following Jesus and played a big part in even supporting Jesus' ministry financially were rarely educated. How is it that they would be trusted with the good news of God's invitation to forgiveness and life to the fullest extent possible? Isn't that the very definition of unimaginable? And yet by faith, not perfectly, but by faith and perseverance in the face of failure and recovery, this message began to spread. Jesus defined what he meant by fishing for men as he spoke at the end of Matthew by saying, All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all I have commanded and I will be with you to the end of the age. And about 40 days after this time, after Jesus' resurrection, right before he ascends to heaven, his last words to his disciples were, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Who is Jesus talking to right here at the beginning of Acts? Acts 1 verse 2 tells us the 11 disciples were there. Peter, who a little over 40 days earlier denied that he even knew Jesus three times. And right before that, several, if not all, of Jesus were, have been arguing over which of them was the greatest. There was Thomas. He refused to believe that Jesus had been resurrected until he put his hands and the nail scars of Jesus' hands and the wound in his side. There were Jesus' mother and brothers who were there, and earlier they had tried to bring Jesus home because they thought he was crazy. These were not extraordinary people. They were normal, just like you and me. But they believed Jesus and obeyed him. Can you sense the unimaginable? Turn to your neighbor and give them a big COVID-safe nod, yes. Turn to your other neighbor. Do the same. <laughs> so what happened next? Did the good news of Jesus start moving into all nations? Yes, in a qualified sort of way. The followers of Jesus waited as instructed until they received the Holy Spirit. The same Holy Spirit that every person receives the instant they put their trust in Jesus. Ephesians 1 Go read it yourself. It describes that we are sealed with the unbreakable seal of the Holy Spirit the moment we believe. 
God opens the door for Peter to speak to a bunch of people. He tells them that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved and that they crucified the author of life, not a seeker-friendly message, when they executed Jesus, but that he did not stay in the grave but rose to life. And when the people asked, what should we do? Peter said in Acts 2, verse 38, Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And about 3,000 people accepted that invitation and were baptized the same day. Who were these people who accepted this message? Acts chapter 2, verse 5 tells us, God-fearing Jews from every nation. Jews from what nations? Remember that nation of Israel does not exist at this time. They're under the rule of Rome. And earlier, by a few hundred years, God had allowed Assyria and then Babylon to take the captured Jews all over the Middle East. You can find a list of countries in Acts 2, verse 8. I'm going to read the modern names for these countries or countries that were in the regions that are described. These Jews were from Iran, Iraq, Kuwait, western Syria, of course the Jerusalem area, Turkey, Egypt, Libya, Cyrene, the Arabian Peninsula countries, Saudi Arabia, Italy, Greece. But they all had one thing in common. They're what we might call today Messianic Jews. They had the prophecy of Scripture. They had the Passover which pointed to Jesus. They had the books of the law and the prophets, like Isaiah, which all pointed to the coming Savior. And this is what Jesus had in mind, right? Jews getting the fulfillment of their faith? The promised Messiah? Getting closer. Maybe. But there was still an aspect of Jesus' great commission that was unimaginable to these faithful Jewish disciples, still as unschooled and ordinary as described in chapter 4 of Acts, except that they had been with Jesus. As we continue reading, we see the disciples abiding with God through prayer, studying the scriptures, and eating, serving, and worshiping together. Persecution begins as the disciples are arrested, threatened, and punished for teaching about Jesus in the temple courts. Stephen is arrested and stoned to death. And then persecution on a large scale breaks out. And the disciples are scattered. And they're telling others about Jesus and inviting them to repentance. But who are they telling? Let's read in Acts chapter 11, verse 19. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among Jews. Why were Jesus' disciples only telling other Jews about Jesus? What about the Gentiles, or in other words, every person who wasn't a part of the Jewish heritage? Open your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 10, if you want to follow along. We're going to take a close look at the unimaginable becoming imaginable and even stepping into reality and then consider what it might mean for our lives in Iowa City and the world we live in. Starting at Acts, chapter 10, and we'll read the whole chapter because it's beautiful. 
Acts chapter 10. At Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion who was known, a centurion in what was known as the Italian regiment. He's not Jewish. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord? He asked. The angel answered, Your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon, who is called Peter. He's staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up to the roof to pray. He became hungry and he wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. And side note, if you want to read in Leviticus, there's a bunch of rules about things that Jews should eat and should not eat, which still continue today, which is where they get the phrase kosher. And then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. While Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. They called out asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you. So get up and go downstairs, and do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. Peter went down and said to the men, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? The men replied, We have come from Cornelius, the centurion. He is a righteous and God-fearing man who is respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him to ask you to come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. Then Peter invited the men into his house to be his guests. The next day, Peter started out with them, and some of the believers from Joppa went along. And the following day, he arrived in Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and his close friends. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him get up. Stand up, he said. I'm only a man myself. And while talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, You are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. What? You are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with someone who's not Jewish. 
unimaginable. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising objection. May I ask why you sent me? Sent for me. Cornelius answered, About three days ago I was in my house praying at this hour, at three in the afternoon, and suddenly a man in shining clothes stood before me and said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayer and remembered your gifts to the poor. Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He's a guest in the home of Simon the Tanner, who lives by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, and it was good of you to come. Now we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. What has God commanded Peter to tell them? Hint. Best Sunday school answer ever. One word. Starts with J. (laughs) Then Peter began to speak. Now I realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is the Lord of all. You know what has happened throughout the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee, after the baptism that John preached. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil, because God was with him. We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a cross, but God raised him from the dead and on the third day caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen, by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people, to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. And all the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins in his name. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. And then Peter said, Surely no one can stand in their way of being baptized with water. They've received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. This is it. The unimaginable becoming reality, not only talking to and going into the homes of Gentiles, but sharing about Jesus with them and how they too can have forgiveness in his name. We finally see a path to God's unimaginable promise to Abraham. What God spoke about Jesus through the prophet Isaiah in chapter 49, verse 6, where it was written, I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. This is what God had been planning all along. Who are the people in your life that you can never imagine worshiping Jesus? Maybe you're listening today and say, I'm that person. I just can't believe it's for me. Or are there people in your workplace 
or classes or neighborhood that you just don't think it could ever take place. Could God use you? God loves to use the ordinary, unskilled, unconfident, those who are utterly dependent on Him. We had a sweet time hanging out with some of our global workers on Friday and Saturday. A few of them may be here this morning. Our prayer was that through these hangouts, you could see that global workers are not superhumans. They too are ordinary people, just seeking to be faithful and obedient to what they found in Scripture. Does this mean that everyone should move to another country? Nope. I've never said that, and neither did God. But he did say, if we follow him, he will make us fishers of men. Everyone? Yes, that's what Jesus says. Come follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. But I don't have the gift of evangelism. That's not what Jesus said. Evangelism is the act of sharing the teaching or message of Jesus. There is no gift of evangelism. <gasps> what? Yep. An evangelist is a role within the church, but the place where the people got this idea for a gift of evangelism comes from Ephesians 4, verse 11. The word gift is not used there. Let me read what a guy named Ed Stetzer, who works at Wheaton College, wrote about this in his 2014 article entitled, There's No Such Thing as the Gift of Evangelism. In the Bible, evangelism is not a gift. Don't believe me? Look it up. Instead, sharing Christ is a call for all believers. Somewhere along the way, people confused the role of evangelist, Ephesians 4, verse 11, with a gift of evangelism. There is no gift of evangelism, but a call for all to evangelize. The church is gifted with evangelists, and their job is to equip all of God's people to do evangelism. Parkview Evangelical Free Church. It's in our name, y'all. Ed continues on to tell how some people will try to escape this calling by quoting the popular yet unbiblical saying, preach the gospel at all times, use words if necessary. Be sure our actions matter. But the kingdom of God is a ministry of proclamation. Reread Acts 10, verse 42 with me. He, Jesus, commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. Dr. Stetzer summarizes by revising the quote, Preach the gospel at all times. Use words. They're necessary. Can you imagine if Jesus never used words? Only his actions? It never gave us, come to me, all you who are heavy and weary and laden, and I will give you rest. Imagine if we never had those words. Imagine if nobody ever spoke those words to us. Tonight, in this room, 6.30 to 8.30 p.m., also, also through a Zoom link, we have a workshop called Fishers and Farmers. And the Zoom link will be on the front page of the website, all you got to do is go to the website, click on the link. Um, you can come here. You don't have to register. Uh, we'll check you in at the door. Um, you don't have to register for the Zoom. You just go to the Zoom link and just click on it. I'm going to walk through some of the most helpful things I've learned about sharing Jesus with others. 
We're going to start with what it means to abide with Jesus because in John 15, 5, Jesus says we'll bear much fruit only if we abide in him. We're going to talk about evangelistic prayer, asking God to show us who around us needs to hear about Jesus and how to start praying for them and asking for God to soften their hearts. We're going to get exposure to developing skills or tools that can be used under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Things like writing a 90-second version of how God has changed your life and practicing speaking it with others, getting feedback from them. What's confusing? What's interesting? What might you take out? What might you need to add in? And you know, I want to apologize for all the times the church may have asked you to go share Jesus but hasn't given you any practical steps for how to prepare. We're going to do that tonight. We're going to learn how to use Scripture to state the gospel to someone. We're going to learn things we might do if a person is ready to accept Jesus and wants to, or they just want to learn more about him because they don't know enough about him to trust him. That's perfectly logical. I promise these things will not be complicated. In fact, if the tools aren't simple enough to learn and pass on, they aren't useful. I'd say this workshop is accessible for anyone ages 8 and up, and this is based on my experience teaching in the public schools for many years before I started working at Parkview. You will not leave this night being an expert, but you will have an introduction to some of the tools that you can continue developing and asking God to lead you in using. You might want me to come work with your small group <clears throat> for additional training or asking questions. That's why we started the young adult group, The Table, meeting at 7.30 on Thursday nights. We're taking these topics and spreading them out a week or two at a time to learn the scriptural roots and then put these tools into practice and then to share our experience using the tools, to pray with and for each other. The destination of the group is outward, how to build God's kingdom. I hope you can make it tonight. It will help you to have a notebook or something to write with or a laptop, whatever you prefer. Again, we're doing it on Zoom so we can have breakout rooms, a place to practice with others. It might not be the best video quality, but I think the chance to interact with others is worth that sacrifice. If you want to come in person again, there's no need to register. We'll just check you in at the door for the Zoom link. Click on the website, you're in. Are you starting to imagine the unimaginable? A few years ago, we had a speaker at this conference named Ying Kai. In his book, Training for Trainers, he told about how disappointed he was that he could only lead about 200 people to put their trust in Jesus in a year's time. Much of what I'm sharing tonight comes from his work. Currently this year, God has given me the privilege of leading two young men to put their trust in Jesus. I want to grow. I want to get better. Jesus said the harvest is ready. What if every person at Parkview were equipped to share Jesus with 50 people in a year? Just share, regardless of the response. Like the crazy farmer. I got that from Yinkai. The crazy farmer in Luke 8 who puts the seeds everywhere, on the rocks, on the path, on the good soil. He doesn't care. He's putting seeds everywhere. What if five of those 50 said yes to Jesus? What would you do with them? How would they grow? How would Parkview change? Simply from numbers, 700 members, underestimate. 700 times five equals 3,500. 
What if part of helping them grow was teaching them how to reach out and share Jesus with others? You know, Jesus cast a legion of demons out of a man in Luke 8 and spent a couple of hours with him and then sent him home with the instructions, return home and tell how much God has done for you. He didn't say answer all their questions. He simply said, return home and tell how much God has done for you. And Scripture says, so the man went away and told all over town how much Jesus had done for him. So, each person is training five people to share Jesus with others. Let's say God also gives them five people to say yes to Jesus. 3,500 times five is 17,500, plus another 3,500 because the people who led five people in the first year are not going to be satisfied with five people in the first year. They're going to want to try to lead another five people to Jesus in the next year. Now we're at 21,000 in two years. Would we have to build another church? Or maybe have worship at different times throughout the week? You know, there's a church that meets on several days of the week, like Tuesday night, because they know that many people can never make it on a Sunday. Or meet in homes during off weeks. Or attend every other week. Or utilize online capabilities. Or find other remote meeting places that can hold more people. 21,000 times 5 equals over 100,000. Jesus only had 12. We're starting with 700. Hope to see you tonight. Let's pray. Jesus, you say that if we don't speak, the rocks will cry out. God, we dare not ask if that's literal or figurative. God, they will cry out if we don't speak. God, forgive us for not speaking. Forgive us for not believing that you will make us fishers of men. Forgive us for not applying our hearts and our minds and our lives to learning, to practicing, speaking your message through fumbling efforts, through recovery, through prayer, through desperation, through abiding with you. Lord, help us. None of these things that I can share tonight are useful without the guidance of your Holy Spirit, and they're only suggestions. They're not a comprehensive list about how you want to work in the lives of believers. But Lord, help us take a step forward. Lord, help us turn outwards, break our hearts for the lost, the sheep who are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Lord, do this because you are able. Do this because you promised. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.